WCHD3 Detroit, KMPS HD3 Seattle, WBMX HD3 Boston, and on AOL Radio and Yahoo Launchcast. Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now 248 545 Soul. New SkyRadio.com. Are certain areas of the world more prone to paranormal events than others? If so, why? How pervasive are paranormal phenomena over the planet in general? Hey there, and welcome to the 490th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and those questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. This evening we bring you an... No, wait, we have a guest, don't we? Oh, we we do. We do indeed. Oh, oh, dear, mistake in the script. How could that happen? Anyway, Dr. Peter A. McHugh worked worked, for many years as a clinical psychologist. He holds a doctorate from the University of Glasgow, Scotland, awarded for a thesis on hypnosis. Peter's interest in psychical research and UFO phenomena goes back decades. He's the author of numerous articles on these subjects and a book published last year, Zones of Strangeness, an Examination of Paranormal and UFO Hotspots. He has recently written for the Fortan Times and Paranormal Review. For more information about the book, it's www.authorhouse.co.uk slash bookstore. And there's a link to that on our own show website. There are other links, again, on that show website, behindtheparanormal.com. So, Doctor, welcome to the show. Good evening. Thank you very much. Oh, it's great to have you here. Alrighty, so let's uh, get let's kick this off with a little little simple question. So, what do you or how would you define a paranormal hotspot? I would define it as a, an area that has a statistically higher concentration of anomalous events, paranormal events, than w- one would expect. The problem, of course, is that we don't have background information uh, to to help us really know whether places are hot spots and it's often it it really comes down to an impressionistic judgment really in in, in many cases uh, because we just don't have the background information you know if if we could divide the country up or you know the world up every country in the world into little squares and we knew absolutely the true incidence of of events there um, that would be helpful, but even then it would be complicated by the fact of population variations. If there are fewer people, there are fewer potential witnesses and so on. So I think this is a big problem actually in deciding whether areas really are hot spots. The other problem, of course, is that if an area achieves, if it receives publicity because of very active researchers, the ratio of reported uh, incidents may rise, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the true number is higher there than elsewhere. So, what exactly classifies some place as a hotspot? Well, it's a it's a label that's that's used quite freely by the media and yeah. indeed by you know some some investigators. Uh, you know, after if there's a spate of UFO incidents or some ghostly manifestations, maybe a bit of Bigfoot activity. Um, or maybe just a, a, a mixture of all of them um, that attracts attention. The, the area is likely to be called a hot spot. I think it's worth distinguishing, actually. I, I make a distinction between what I call monoculture hot spots and multiculture hot spots. Um, a monoculture hot spot being one where there seems to be a higher rate of a particular type of phenomenon, for instance, UFO sightings, whereas a multicultural hotspot would be one uh, involving 
phenomena across the the traditional categories, maybe ghostly phenomena, UFOs, Bigfoot, cattle mutilations, things of that nature. Hmm. Alrighty. So we understand that you have personally visited hotspots in only in the UK, but what's the most active hotspot you've uh, uh, investigated? Well, well, in terms of um, the UK, um, I'm, I'm I'm not sure. To be some of the hotspots that I've written about and, and and researched, they seem to have quietened down. Um, some of these places seem to be like volcanoes; they can become dormant or or, or extinct. And um, I think they're still of interest, though. Um, uh, for instance, one one that I looked at was up in the north of Scotland. It's not a very well known one, but it's near Inverness, an area uh, around Loch Ashie. Um, where there have been scattered reports over the years of people witnessing a phantom battle. There have also been reports of people encountering a, um, a, an apparitional car, um, plus a few other apparitional events as well. But as, as far as I'm aware, that nothing, nothing really has happened there that, that's of note that I've heard of in recent years. So that may be a, an extinct or dormant hotspot, but it's a... It's of theoretical and, and, and scientific interest, nonetheless. I was actually the, just going to ask you about extinct hotspots, but all right. <laughs> no, that actually answered the question of that, at least. So moving on, in your book, you also talk about uh, window areas. So how do you define that? Well, the, the term window areas was introduced, I think, by John Keel initially. Um, and he seems to he used the expression to um, to designate very large areas which isn't the way that the term is conventionally used now it it tends to be used loosely by people particularly in ufology but also in other areas of the paranormal uh, to, 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 to designate a, a, a long-term hotspot without any particular specification of its size um, I think for Keel, when he, he he initially used the term, he was talking about really large areas. Um, but even a relatively small area might be designated as a, a window area uh, by by investigators, particularly if, as I say, if the phenomena there seem to be going on for a long time. If there, if it's just going on for say six months, it, it might be referred to as a, a local flap or a temporary flap. I tend to use the term hotspot as a general term without having to worry too much about defining whether it's really long-term or not uh, for a concentrate, a local concentration of events. Hmm. All right. So your book is quite neutral on explanations, but do you have a favorite theory to explain all this? I do. With regard to those phenomena that I think are genuinely paranormal, my, my leaning is towards what I call the higher intelligence theory. Uh, the notion that a lot of paranormal phenomena can be construed as theatrical performances staged by a higher intelligence and that the entities encountered, be they Bigfoot, UFOs, ghosts, have only a, a transient existence. They can be regarded as stage props in the drama. Their role is to, to uh, help the performance along. They don't exist. Once the, the ghost is no longer being observed, it doesn't, doesn't exist somewhere else. The UFO perhaps doesn't exist anywhere after the, after the sighting ends. Uh, it, it, it may, in a sense, cease to exist at that point because its function has been fulfilled uh, for the dramatic purpose. 
Now, this view doesn't exclude other theories. I don't think one can sort of say if one favours a particular theory, it necessarily means that more than one possibility can't be true. As, can't be true. But that's the, the interpretation I'm, I've come to, um, having, having looked at this area, particularly looking at cases where there is a distinct overlap between traditional categories. Uh, and there are cases of that nature. I could just mention one for illustration, if, 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 if you'll permit me. Um, there's an interesting book by... Stan Gordon, a, a Pennsylvania-based researcher of UFOs and Bigfoot phenomena. And Stan Gordon's book, the one I'm referring to, is called Silent Invasion, the Pennsylvania UFO Bigfoot Casebook. And this looks at a, a rash of uh, UFO and Bigfoot sightings that occurred in Pennsylvania uh, in 1972 to 74, particularly concentrated in the southwest part of the state. And the, the incident I'd like to mention occurred outside Uniontown in Fayette County um, in, I think it was October 1973. There was a UFO sighting involving about 15 witnesses, and the object seen in the sky was reddish or red and round. And it seemed to come down on some farmland. And one of the witnesses, a man who's referred to with the pseudonym Steve Palmer, Stephen Palmer, in the in, in in Gordon's book, went to this field on his father's farm, accompanied by a couple of boys, and they saw a huge white domed structure with a flattish base, with a whirring sound coming from it, and there was a smell in the air, someone like burning rub, somewhat like burning rubber. The witnesses saw a couple of creatures, hairy creatures, with glowing green eyes, no visible necks and long arms, and they were coming towards them. And one of these creatures seemed to be over eight feet tall, and the other was about seven feet tall. Palmer fired a, a tracer shot over them. And when he fired a second such shot, the, the UFO vanished and the whirring sound ceased. Um, but uh, when the UFO left, it, it, it vanished. There was just a, a, a ring of luminous, uh, luminosity left. Palmer then fired some live shots at the, these creatures which were retreating to an area of woodland, but n neither of them seemed to be harmed by the bullets. And there were some further um, incidents later that evening, including uh, some things happening when, when uh, Gordon and his colleagues arrived on the scene. So this particular case is fascinating because it suggests that there can be an overlap between the Bigfoot phenomenon and the UFO phenomenon. It also suggests to me that there's something sort of rather non-physical uh, about at least some UFO phenomena and at least some Bigfoot phenomena. And there's a, the, the other thing, I suppose, that stands out for me about this is the theatricality of the whole event. Hmm. That's an interesting point of view. Uh, we're coming up on a break, but when... Well, actually, no, we do have a second. Uh, I, uh, I've never... I've heard that point of view put forward, uh, Peter, but I, I haven't um, seen it put forward by very many people. Um, as one with a degree in philosophy, and I'm, I'm going to push your book for you, something I almost never do because being a, a professional editor and, and, and having edited books professionally, I'm very difficult to please, but zones of strangeness won me over immediately because it was objectivity and the early mention of philosophical positions on reality, such as materialism, uh, epiphenomenalism, dualism, visions of reality in which the paranormal might or might not fit. Very, very well done. And we'll talk more about that a bit later. Uh, you define the terms clearly. You take no position on theories one way or the other. I respect that. Uh, you even discuss the Tandy infrasound case, which influenced my thinking. 
And uh, you get into Dr. Michael Persinger and even the Hutchison effect. And I don't often recommend books, as I say, but I highly recommend this one. Um, certainly, I'd like to have you back after I finish reading it. It's nearly Thank 550 pages, and I'm certainly yes. going to use it in the bibliographies of my next book. So uh, that is, I believe, the highest compliment I've ever given an author on the air. Thank so, you very much. You're very welcome. It's well-deserved. So we're going to take a break now, come back with some of my questions in just a moment. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Van Eno on CBS New Sky Radio. Stick with us. Enlighten. Empower. Enrich. This is CBS Radio's The New Sky. New horizons. No boundaries. Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248 545 Soul. New SkyRadio.com. Believe. 
Yep, better believe it. We're back. This is Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno with our wonderful guest, Dr. McHugh. So, let us continue, gentlemen. All right. Uh, now, Peter, having given you a tremendous uh, boost, I hope, for the book, which I really, really enjoy, uh, my only disappointment is that you mentioned uh, the multiverse once that I have found so far in the whole book. And uh, then only in the context of UFOs. Um, and, and again, you, you take a very balanced approach. You cover all the bases, as we would say, uh, in, in the uh, history. of. And I studied under some of the best, including Dr. Louisa Ryan. And, and you, you really hit all the high spots in paranormal research and parapsychology as well. Uh, now, for 35 years, at least, this multiverse idea, which, of course, comes from the quantum physics notion of the multiple worlds interpretation of, of that uh, bizarre theories, those bizarre theories, uh, has been, that's been the working theory in all of my paranormal research, simply because it was the only thing that could explain what I was seeing and experiencing as a researcher, uh, and having started out in the seminary and been thrown out uh, therefrom because of the... Uh, displeasure of the church authorities on my paranormal research. I really oh, have gosh. seen all aspects of it. But uh, I see why you don't talk much about this multiple worlds idea, because very few people do. Uh, what say you on all that? I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch your very last question, the, the last word or two. Oh, no, so I'm just what? saying, uh, do you have a comment on, on the whole multiverse idea, or have you considered that in, in, as, as a possible theory for these, even these uh, hotspot areas? I thought, um, I, 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 I have sort of vaguely considered it, I suppose, or considered it, but uh, and maybe not in sufficient depth, but I, I felt that the notion of the theatrical production of a higher intelligence was, in a, in a sense, more parsimonious. Hmm. No, no, that's quite an interesting... Um... So the trouble with talking about this subject, particularly in, in, in that light, is um, that we, I think, all too often attribute human motivations. We get very anthropomorphic. Uh, yes. Human motivations uh, on entities and phenomena that, that might be working out of an entirely different framework. So yeah. that being a recognized danger, I'm, I'm going to ask you the question. Uh, what higher intelligence would this be, and what would be the motivation for staging these events? I think the the, the obvious and honest answer is I don't know. Um, and I think it's possible to separate out the notion that there is a higher intelligence from its motives. In other words, if one can't accurately gauge the motive, it doesn't necessarily weaken the argument that there could be the intelligence. But it, being very speculative, there are two possibilities which I do briefly consider in the final chapter. Um, neither of which I'm, you know, totally convinced about. But the first one is that the higher intelligence has a concern for our environment, um, and we're very poor stewards of the, our environment. I think few people could could would deny that. Um, and that the the higher intelligence is like it wants is trying to drop hints or to trying to tell us that we're not managing our environment very well. Um, for instance, there are reports of uh, UFO contactees being told by alleged aliens that the aliens think we're making a bad job of of, of the show. Uh, there are also reports of UFO activity occurring in the vicinity of nuclear. 
weapons establishments or nuclear weapons sites, oh, yeah. even reports of uh, missile systems malfunctioning when these sightings occur. Uh, however, I'm not aware of any evidence that that UFO activity or other paranormal activity has actually stopped or even, for that matter, slowed down environmental degradation at the hands of the human race. The other uh, possibility, and again, it's speculative, is that the higher intelligence is acting a bit like a sort of Zen master or a kind <laughs> of guru, mm. dropping hints that our worldview is blinkered, is, isn't, is too narrow, our scientific thinking isn't broad enough and it it therefore generates phenomena on a periodic basis to keep us on our toes so to speak um, well look looking at the larger picture if i may when one looks at the history of ufo phenomena they go back to, well arguably to the last ice age or before yeah. uh, ages in which there were no hints of environmental degradation at least not at our hands yeah. um, what would be the reason for those, if if that theory held, or, or or could there have been another explanation for, you know, the people seeing uh, battles in the sky in in the Suffolk in the sixteen, you know, that that sort of thing. Well, I, I, the problem is that when we look at some of these early reports, um, we have to it has to be asked how true are they? Mm. Um, I mean, for instance, uh, in the book, I don't know whether you've come upon this yet, but I briefly mention. Um, there were reports that um, after the first battle of the English Civil War, in, uh, in, 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 in the first battle of, was the Battle of Edge Hills, I think it was 1642, um, that there were reports that people in the locality near Kyneton in Warwickshire, England, saw reenactments of the battle. There were two pamphlets uh, that, that they gave slightly, di well, somewhat divergent accounts of this. Um, and the pamphlets claimed that the the king had learned of the these events and sent a delegate. I think both pamph pamphlets claimed they sent a delegation, and I think they they both pamphlets claimed that the the delegation itself had sort of witnessed the phenomena. And that that particular belief that the, that there were apparitional replays of the Battle of Edge Hill has been repeated many times in different books on ghosts and apparitions. And I think with the distance of time from the events, people have assumed that someone must have checked the story out. But some years ago, along with another researcher, I did some historical research on this case, and we found we, we were unable to confirm that that, that those reports and other, we came to the conclusion that those pamphlets may have been fictitious you know the stories mm -hmm. told in the pamphlets um for instance the uh, the vicar uh, the the minister named in the pamphlets was was named as a samuel marshall but the vicar of the town kyneton of the, or the village involved was someone called fisher um uh, we, we found no evidence to support the contention that the, the King Charles I sent a delegation to investigate apparitional phenomena in the area. So we came to the conclusion the stories may have been fictitious. And I think around that time, in, in, in England at least, I think it, it, people did write pamphlets with a sort of, you know, if they wanted to get their message across, they might sort of uh, be a bit inventive about facts and so on. So I suppose if you partial out those sorts of cases where people have made up stories, there may not be a great 
it, it's, it's hard to say how much substantial material of, of veridical material there would be in those extremely early accounts. I honestly don't know. Obviously, I, I can't say how many of them are true as opposed to you know, pieces of mythology that have been committed to. to oh, of course, um, although uh, the sheer number of them would indicate uh, one would think that <clears throat> a certain amount of veracity is attached to at least some of them. But be that as it may. One of the uh, oh, of course, what you what you say rings true, particularly with the uh, uh, Battle of uh, Mars in, 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 for example, World War One, and yes. uh, the, the supposedly made up by a journalist and an entire regiment involved, uh, you know, being saved yes. from the Germans by this uh, became a <clears throat> rather a, 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 the government took it and made and made the most of it, of course, for a war purpose. Right. However, things of that kind. But then again, you know, there are things that I myself have been part of, uh, poltergeist phenomena and activity in, in one or two rather famous cases. And uh, having been there, I uh, have seen what had happened. Of course, later on, becoming a newspaper journalist for 35 years, I can see, first of all, the last people I would call into a case such as that would be journalists because they don't get it right. And people are amazed when I say that with the Bridgeport outbreak of poltergeist outbreak of 1974, the only paper that got it right was the National Enquirer, which is considered the most ridiculous supermarket tabloid one can imagine in this country. And yes. uh, <clears throat> I won't mention the, the equivalent in, in the UK, but uh, it, it, it was um, one does have to be very careful with with, with evidence uh, and with eyewitness accounts. Uh, although I find that eyewitnesses tend to be rather rather accurate, depending on where they are and what they've seen. Uh, but that being said, uh, one might ask the question, and I would ask uh, Peter uh, this question uh, of, of you, uh, what constitutes evidence in any of your research? In my research, um, well, it, it's it, 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 evidence constitutes, well, it's a mixture of um, what people say, what people have written, it particularly if it can be validated, um, particularly I, I think if there's a reason it's reasonable to conclude from the testimony and from previous research and cases that, that there's, a, there's a similarity between the, their report and, and, uh, and what's, what's happened in the past. Um, so I think the, the evidence is... Um, it's a question of balance and judgment, you know, rather than sort of very tight criteria, I think, with these things. All right. All right. I mean, I, I think it's, it's the, best, the best approach to this, really, is to, to say from the outset, when you're dealing with reported events, that you can't absolutely validate. These are reported events. I may, for the sake of um, ease of expression, uh, with, with not use the word alleged in every sentence, <laughs> but the, re <laughs> yes. the, re the reader is to take that as, as, as assumed. <laughs> take it as a given, yes. yes. Now, now, let's get into some of the actual hotspots. Uh, let's begin with Rendlesham Forest, to which we which we have both researched. And uh, what um, tell us about your work there and, and what your conclusions were? Right. Well, I was aware, of course, of the the events in late December 1980. Um, just for the benefit of any listeners who aren't familiar with this, um, in late December 1980, there were some UFO events at the twin U.S. bases of uh, Bentwaters. Um, 
and um, Woodbridge, um, RAF Woodbridge, RAF Bentwaters, which were these 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 stations, uh, air force stations, were being used by the United States Air Force then, and that was the time, of course, of the Cold War. Uh, and there were some UFO sightings, and um, a memo was written by a, a Lieutenant Colonel Holt about this, and. This this came to light eventually, and it's, it's excited tremendous interest among people concerned with UFOs on both the sceptical and the not, the not and and the more believing side. Unfortunately, I think as a result of that, people have tended to focus just on that period and perhaps not look to the bigger picture of, uh, because there are reports that, that, that predate the 1980 incidents and post-dated of, of, of people having odd experiences in that area. I was talking, I was in, in touch with um, someone who informed me that people were making regular sort of pilgrimages to the forest. I'm afraid I'll have to interrupt you, Peter. We have another break pending, but we'll come right back to that in just a moment, talking about Reynoldson Forest, something people have uh, heard frequently on this show. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Benino on CBS New Sky Radio. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is where the mind meets the soul cbs radios the new sky new skyradio.com
Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOUL. New SkyRadio.com. Believe. Welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno and our guest, Dr. McHugh. And we are talking of lots of interesting things like flaps and hotspots and things like that. Well, we were talking about uh, ubiquitous uh, Rendlesham Forest. Uh, of course. Situation. Yes. And <clears throat> as, uh, as Dr. McHugh had suspected exactly what we, what we uh, have, and, and have a, and then this is the way in which we've approached it, it was sort of um, tip of the iceberg in the 1980 UFO sightings, and we found that ourselves there. So, so Peter, please continue uh, with your um, – to regale us with the heroic tale of your uh, – Adventures of Rendlesham, or your research at Rendlesham. Right. Well, I'd, I'd heard that people were making sort of pilgrimages to the forest and, and reporting phenomena. And the, the person who informed me about this was rather skeptical and I think assumed that the phenomena these people were reporting would have been the result of expectancy, suggestion, and misperception and so on. But I, I thought I'd, I'd like to look into it myself. So I made contact with uh, with one person in particular, Brenda Butler, who, oh, a good friend who, of who's, who's been interested in the area for years and makes regular visits to the forest. And I went down there and visited the forest, met Brenda, met some of uh, one or two of her you know, associates. And then I made contact with some other witnesses. Um, and um, I... I, I I was interested in in the, the reports of ongoing phenomena, and one in one type of manifestation in particular that intrigued me, and I think I received reports of this from six different people, would be that people would be walking through the forest and a stone would fall down, and when if, when picked up, it would be found to be hot or warm, and the stone itself would be sort of rather rounded and would be smooth and round, perhaps unlike the stones that would normally be found there. Um, one witness, um, for instance, a man called Peter Parrish, told me that one night he was standing at the western end of one of the tracks and he, he called out loud, um, are you from another dimension? A stone then fell down beside him and he asked, can you drop a stone on the track in front of me where I'm shining the torch beam? And that duly happened. And then when he asked whether a stone could be dropped on the road behind him, one obligingly fell there. <laughs> so uh, if, if, if this is accurate, it sounds like a highly interactive poltergeist-type phenomenon almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Those and, are the very sorts of stones that, that do occur in poltergeist cases where mm-hmm. there's stone thrown. Yes. And the, uh, the, the other types of phenomena the witnesses were reporting were more could be more easily dismissed from a skeptical point of view. Uh, people were reporting maybe seeing lights or, or uh, tactile sensations um, and so on. And it, it would be possible to argue that people in a forest in, in, in nighttime where the, the situation is ambiguous and from a sensory point of view, particularly with a degree of sleep deprivation, could be prone to misperceptions of one sort or another. But this, that, that particular manifestation interests me because it was physical. Um, I was also shown quite a few photographs by Brenda of uh, anomalies that she'd captured using uh, mainly digital cameras, I think, if not wholly. Um, and I showed some of the pictures to um, a, a former cell biologist who'd become a professional photographer. And his, 
his view was that these these anomalies could be explained in no ordinary terms. Although there were there was one particular picture, I think that it was one or maybe two, um, that he, he 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 even he I think found a little bit difficult to to account for. Um, and I wasn't entirely convinced that these these pictures could be explained in normal terms because another witness told me that when he tried to obtain such um, anomalies, um, it didn't happen, it, but it did start happening after, as he put it, he became attuned to the forest. Um, mm. Almost as if he had to sort of go through a, an apprenticeship before the phenomenon would have manifested itself to him. I've heard um, that from several uh, several sources. Yes. Well, our, our work there, and of course we were there with Brenda uh, when this occurred. Maybe, maybe, maybe Brenda's the problem. <laughs> well, She's probably, I did, probably I did listening, consider, so I should be careful. I just <laughs> sort of catalyst or a poltergeist agent, but um, <laughs> another possibility with, with these things is that uh, when, when, when there seems to be a, a catalyst or a, a, what some people would Go, go as far as to say as the poltergeist agent, they're really a, that person's really a red herring. That the, if there is a tricksterish intelligence playing with us, it may deliberately set up a situation where there seems to be a catalyst who will be blamed for the phenomena, but isn't really responsible for them. Well, I, I've never found that. In, I, I don't know. I, I was sort of a renegade from the, the standard parapsychological interpretation of poltergeist. I never believed in the... Well, I did believe in the agent theory, but the more I would experience these things, the less I believed in it. But yeah. just to, to, to stay with Reynoldson for right now, uh, I, Ben, I suppose you don't want to talk about what happened to you. No. All right. <laughs> not talk particularly. Won't talk. All right. Well, well, it's not even that. It's, it's just like... rather disconcerting. Well, I mean, it's a very personal thing. Of course. It's not like you just go on the air and say, this is what I ate for breakfast this morning, everybody. Well, it's not a little more dramatic than that. But I know. Case, well, I, I was um, running out of examples. Suffice it to say that he wouldn't—he wouldn't go back the next day. He just was tired and didn't feel up to it. And, and what had happened was rather shook us all up. Um, it's a point where dogs were howling down the road, and it was quite, quite dramatic. Rather Lovecraftian. Anyway, in part of our research, and we we gave a talk in Woodbridge and mentioned this. In speaking of hot spots or flap areas, if you will. We did some research, and within 50 miles, actually within 40 miles of Rendlesham Forest over this, the centuries, and some of these things go back to Saxon times, you had things like the green children of Woolpit in the 12th century. These children literally, literally with green skin, supposedly, were found. The Aldberg Sky Battle, so-called, of 1642, if that's accurate, well attested from what I could see. The Aldberg Flying Disc with sailors on it in 1916, supposedly 13 miles away. A disappearing cyclist, Great Yarmouth, 1988, 40 miles away. Numerous big cat sightings. And I was over in 89 in, in Devon and, and uh, Somerset researching big cats. That was in the Sudbury area in 1996, 25 miles away. All sorts of black dog sightings ongoing, countywide in Suffolk. And then, of course, Randlesham Forest itself, UFOs, orbs, ghosts, time slips, poltergeists, black dogs, yeti even. Uh, stories going back again, as I say, to Saxon times. So uh, that was our sort of inventory of many of yes. the things that apparently have occurred there. So. Yes, Sudbury, the Sudbury area features also in my book. Um, that was the setting of a, a controversial, long-running case years ago, the, the alleged haunting of Borley Rectory. Uh, oh, yes. Sudbury. Mm -hmm. and now, that's famous uh, in many of the cases. Uh, Herbert Thurston's book, but they're a classic of the paranormal. It was a priest who yes. wrote about that and it uh, became legendary. So. 
doesn't exist anymore, the Borley Rectory. But again, mm-hmm. the, these uh, areas, and my contention is, Peter, that, that the entire planet really is quote-unquote haunted because, in, in my interpretation, we have overlaps of parallel worlds all the time. It's the normal state of the place, and yes. we ourselves are passing through this. But again, you know, again, maybe we're wrong, but that, that's just the way I've experienced it. And the idea of the um, higher intelligence attempting to make a point is is quite interesting in your so, so do you believe in the agent theory of poltergeist most people do in other words that the, the energy comes from a particular person no i'm i'm i i, I used to i think i sort of went i used along to as well <laughs> yeah but i i'm 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 more inclined now to think in terms of this sort of the, the, the notion I've already articulated to some extent, this higher intelligence idea. Mm. Um, one of the reasons I, 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 I dismiss the agent theory, or I say I dismiss it, I, I, I'm skeptical of it. It seems to uh, um, attribute fantastic uh, scientific knowledge and performance skills to people who are normally, um, you know, would not be regarded as that capable. I mean, n- none of us is. Um, uh, and it, 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 it involves a kind of super level of ESP and PK operating together um, in a person who doesn't normally exhibit it. And therefore, I, I'm inclined to think to relegate to the so-called subconscious mind of um, you know, a, a disturbed adolescent or whoever the agent might, the supposed agent is, uh, or these powers is just sort of almost moving the problem elsewhere and, and saying we've solved it. Whereas oh, we, I agree. We, I agree. One of the things that, that I'm sure you've run into too, and that I find absolutely, I'm sure I speak for Ben too, we find absolutely fascinating are phenomena that, that uh, involve people walking into hotspots, oh, so yeah. some people. And coming out with knowledge they never had before. I'm thinking particularly of the uh, the Mothman. Or what's that place in Russia? Oh, I don't remember. I can't. I can't remember. Marley Woods in Missouri. That uh, That too. Yeah. And in the Mothman situation in the 1960s in the Ohio Valley of the United States, which is commonly associated with a hideous creature, I'm sure you're familiar with it, with the wings and no head and all this, people were uh, reporting being terrified. Uh, When we were there, we talked to. Witnesses who are now grown, who remember not only that, but uh, apparitions and poltergeist phenomena in their homes, uh, red eyes looking through windows, uh, footsteps being heard on their rooftops, things of this kind. And one particular fellow, uh, um, uh, Kevin Colvin, I believe, uh, was yes uh, guest on the show several times. Had a no, it was Andy. It was Andy. Andy, I beg your pardon. Andy Colvin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Had a. uh, a rather a positive experience with Mothman. His family uh, had a, an experience of uh, apparition, things of this kind. He himself uh, suddenly developed great musical abilities, uh, mathematical abilities, and to this and artistic abilities as well. And, and now makes his living uh, as an artist and a musician, and a rather brilliant one, if, if I may say. <laughs> All because he attributes it to this uh, this sort of. Um, Immersion in a flap area or, or hotspot. That, that would make a really interesting book, wouldn't it? If, if someone were would. to collect, collect cases of that nature, because I I'm not familiar with that really. And uh, let's so do that. I we'll collaborate. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. No, no, that 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 would that was, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, um, I, I think it certainly certainly deserves. Um, well, it will be well, mentioned one, in our upcoming book. Um, well, one of the areas I looked at in my book was I haven't uh, I've, I've been to Washington State on holiday years ago, but I haven't been to this particular area. Was uh, the Yakima Indian Reservation? Oh yes, which um, 
in the it, in the past at least it, it's it, it had some claim to be a sort of a multicultural hotspot. Um, I, I the, my main source for this was a book by Greg um, Long called the the. Um, the, 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 I think it's testing the Earthlight theory or something. Um, the Yakima uh, UFO microcosm, and he he looked at the, the various sorts of the reports of strange phenomena there. I'm afraid I'll have uh, to stop you, Peter. I'm sorry, we have to take another break. But you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS New Sky Radio. Stick with us, and we'll continue to like. You. Be right back. CBS Radio The Sky and NewSkyRadio.com are presented only for entertainment purposes, and no guarantee is made for the accuracy or suitability of any advice or other information offered. Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOUL. New skyradio.com. 
Welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno and our guest, Dr. Peter McHugh. Let's just get right back to it, guys. <laughs> exactly. Well, first, before we burn up this hour, which we're doing rather quickly, mm. uh, Peter, please tell us about your book, Zones of Strangeness, an examination of paranormal and UFO hotspots, where people can get it, and uh, your website, etc. I don't actually have a website, but the book is advertised on, uh, you know, you, if, if you just type in a, into a search engine, Zones of Strangeness, information will come up. It's available on Amazon.com. It's available from the publisher's um, author house. Um, it's, uh, so, but just typing into Google or something like that, the Zones of Strangeness will give people, you know, they, they, they'll be able to find, find where it can be ordered if they're interested in that. And it's very good. Again, it's, it's one of the few books uh, on this subject that has no agenda it's, I, it's very refreshing my books all have an agenda but peter's, <laughs> peter's does not so please uh, check it out everybody zones of strangeness all right peter uh wh why don't we um continue our conversation and uh you had suggested uh, a, a situation at the uh, yakima indian reservation in washington state we're going to talk about yes um it, it, the, the this particular incident um involved a man um, in 19, it was 1975 and he was driving home um, along a gravel road and um, he saw some car, a, a, a couple of, I think it was a couple of calves and a cow coming towards him and um, he slowed down, they, they seemed to have been, uh, been scared and then he encountered some humanoid figures um, strange-looking, strangely dressed, thin, thin creatures, and um, he decided one of them sort of swung round onto the road, and he decided not to stop, and, and carried on. Um, and um, when he was, as he was driving away, um, he he, um, he he had a. Uh, a voice in his head told him, telling him to drive quickly, to drive rapidly, because they couldn't be afford uh, uh, to, 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 they couldn't afford to be responsible for his, uh, you know, any problem if he had. And uh, shortly after, an elongated, lighted object appeared behind the vehicle, blinking on and off several times. The inside of the truck was illuminated, and he saw a shadow to his right, and intuitively he knew it was the figure of a close friend recognize the, sh the person's uh, head and coat. That figure eventually disappeared, and then the man Miller, this is the pseudonym apparently given to the person, um, had a sort of sick feeling that someone had died. And um, when he got, uh, the, the next day, he discovered, he learned that a friend of his who'd resembled the apparition in the car um, had been killed in a shooting incident. So in other words, this one incident involved humanoids, it involved what could be construed as a UFO, the light effect behind the car, this sort of strange voice telling him to drive quickly, and also what psychical researchers would call a crisis apparition. That is an apparition coinciding with, with a, a major incident, possibly yes. a death, in mm -hmm. the event of the person depicted. And it, to me, again, it illustrates this sort of close overlap that can exist among these different class traditionally uh, phenomena that are traditionally treated as separate, but I tend to think of as being in, in one domain. Well, we are running out of time here, but one one last thing that I, out of my curiosity, I wanted to ask about, uh, do you want to talk about the Welsh Triangle for a little bit? Yeah, the, the Welsh Triangle was a case that was sort of at 
effective around 1977. Um, in, it, it's, it, it concerns an area, an area in southwest Wales, um, mainly in, in the county of Pembrokeshire. And there were reportedly UFO sightings, sightings of humanoids. It was mainly sort of a UFO type uh, flap with human, with with uh, and humanoid uh, um, uh, sightings. There was a, a farm involved, Ripperston Farm, where cattle were allegedly displaced, um, and um, some sort of haunt or poltergeist type phenomena occurred. The problem with the Welsh Triangle case is that. That some of the reporting of it from that time, there were three books written about it, all published initially in 1979, and they, they give rather different accounts. And I think there can be no doubt from a close examination of the case, which I've, I've examined in one of the chapters, that some of the reports were were, 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 were false, were, were false, and maybe based on exaggeration or invention. Um, there's also the suspicion that hoaxing may have been involved in some of the incidents. Um, having said that, I, I, I don't think one can conclude, as perhaps hypersceptics would, on the basis of that, that what I've, I've cited, that the whole case was based on uh, misperception and hoaxing and misreporting. I don't think we, uh, it's safe to go that far, but certainly it's, it's, far from a very, it's far from being a clean case, if you like. Very few of them are, actually. Yes. No, but this one's particularly muddy. I see. Yeah. As was the war, oh, we probably ought to wrap up. I just wanted to mention the Warminster case uh, that's well known in UFO annals, and the entire area was uh, abuzz with this back in that's was right. it, uh, that, 1960s, that wasn't it? Well. 60s, yeah. through, to the, through to about 77, 78. Oh, that, that, that long. Okay. Yeah. Right. yeah. Well, nevertheless, uh, do you. Have you found the evidence that the idea of the shiny thing on the mountain that was entirely natural was uh, responsible for some uh, of these uh, sightings, at least? Uh, there aren't any mountains there. There are some. Well, that, well that's what I thought. I, I've been near there. I haven't been to Warminster, but I've been near there, and I didn't see any mountains. No, no. Just... There are just there are a few hills of very modest height. But yes, uh, are you, you're not thinking of the the the, the Berwyn Mountain incident, are you? Not really, and actually, we're flat out of time, I'm afraid. All but right. Peter, let, let's stay in touch. Fascinating conversation. Until next time. And until <laughs> next time, and thank you for joining us. We're definitely going to have you back. And thank you very much for having me on the show. And uh, get some sleep. <laughs> thank you very much. Very good. Thank you. Alrighty, so you can visit our show website at www.behindtheparanormal.com, where you can find over 500 free podcasts of all of our past shows. Also, check out our site at www.newenglandghosts.com, where there are case studies and photos, along with articles by my dad. And you can find my books at Barnes & Noble Nook and Amazon Kindle and Amazon and all those great places. And you can buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, in which case I will autograph them. And you'll help us keep all those podcasts free. Oh, you uh, also no. Whatever. Oh yeah, well, well, we were you didn't, uh, out of time. Ready, ready, already. So many thanks to our producer Brandon Jackson. And next time, uh, or next, yeah, next time, November tenth, right here on CBS News Sky, we will be celebrating our five hundredth official show uh, with a review of the highlights of all of our best shows since we went on the air in two thousand and eight. In the meantime, tune into our Boston Providence Drive Time Show on WON 1240 and com at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 Pacific, every Monday. We leave you this evening with a thought from Victor Kayyem, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, former owner of our beloved New England Patriots football team. Even if you fall on your face, 
you're still moving forward, unquote. And if I may add, uh, congratulations to the Boston Red Sox for their World Series victory last week. I don't know if our Detroit listeners would be happy about that. But anyway, I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time.